Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in 1 Peter, today chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. We are working our way through this particular letter. Uh, I think it is timely again and again and again and again. Sometimes uh, ministry opportunities sort of boil over in my life and um, I think about what's the antidote for that or help for that or strength for that. Invariably the answer is always 1 Peter. We should, we should know more of 1 Peter. So that motivates me to continue to dig into this and to bring it up again and again and again and again for you to continue to have this resource in your life. There's no person here who does not struggle in some manner. Our struggles are different, but they are the same. They erode our joy, these struggles. They challenge our faith or confidence in God. And thirdly, they have a tendency to pry us away from church or the people of God. The answer for many of us in the midst of our struggles is the church is not the answer. When in fact, the Bible has 180 degrees different explanation for how we should cope with our troubles. And 1 Peter is perhaps ground zero for that. 1 Peter has always affectionately been called the gospel of suffering uh, because he writes to a group of people who are suffering. They're enduring religious persecution in ways that none of us ever have. And yet he reminds them to lean upon God. And so we want to do that today. We're going to read in chapter 2, 12 verses, the first 12 verses. It seems to me that all these verses make the same point. And we want to hear that point. We can fire a, fire a rifle shot today. I hope you hear that. He gives three exhortations based upon that point, And uh, I think it will be helpful for us to recognize that. Before we read, I will call your attention to the first word in verse 1. And that word is so. Now we know what so is. So is a word that summarizes the thought that he's already made. And he's now going to launch off into... Either an application of that thought, so, based on A, you should do B. And that's exactly what he's going to do here. He could go a different direction, but that's the direction he's going to go. So, the question before we read chapter, one, uh, chapter 2 is what's going on before this? What's going on in chapter 1? Well, the answer is, you've been born again. Chapter 1 says, you've been born again. You've been born again, not of human seed, but of spiritual seed. The Word of God has brought to bear in your life the reality of the coming of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. Christ is at the right hand of the Father and He cares deeply for you and that sacrifice of Jesus is for you. And that has become personal to you. You've resonated with that by faith. You believe that, you accept that, you internalize that, and you are now living your life connected to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So you believe in Jesus. You've been born again. You hope in Jesus. You trust in Jesus. So, look now verse 1, put away 
all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, he quotes again from Isaiah 28, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, I want you to note that uh, this, I think this is one long section and uh, 12 verses. And I, I will show you why I believe that first off. Uh, notice in verse 1 that as soon as he finishes the conjunction, he offers an imperative command. Put away. Put away. And he's clear here. Put away these five things. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Put it away. So as a result of your salvation, <coughs> act differently. That's his point. You'll notice that's the exact point he makes in the last two verses that we read, 11 and 12. Beloved, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Again, an imperative. Then a second imperative, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So he says it one way in verse 1, and he says the exact same thing, only different, in verses 11 and 12. So put away malice, put it away, put away deceit, put away hypocrisy and envy. Why? Because you're born again. Because that's not who you are. That's who you were. That's who the rest of the world may be, but that's not you. His argument is, because you're not that, don't be that. Because you're not that, don't do that. Because you're not that, put it away. There are things in your life that ought to go somewhere and never come out again. And these list of five of them. There are many others, by the way. Put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Put it away. Because that is not consistent with what it means to be born again. Now he's going to give us two illustrations, or if you will, two comparisons. He's going to compare it first to newborn babies, and then secondly to stones or rocks or bricks in our context for the most part in a wall or a building. 
I want us to think about those quickly and then hurry to his conclusion because that's really where the water hits the wheel. But notice how he phrases it in verse 2. Like newborn infants that long for their milk, we ought to be the followers of God, the followers of Christ, who long for pure spiritual milk. So, verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, uh, like newborn infants, rather, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. I want to start right there, that that last phrase, verse 3, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, you'll recognize that phrase is only found one place in the Scripture, and it's in Psalm 34. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 8, perhaps familiar to all of us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 34. You might say, well, did Peter have that in mind? Psalm 34. Well, apparently so, because in the third chapter, he's going to quote three verses from Psalm 34. So apparently, Peter has his head and heart buried in Psalm 34 as he's writing this letter. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So he uses that analogy and says, If you've tasted that the Lord is good, then long for milk like a baby longs for milk. Now, some of us know a lot about babies. Some of us know a little less than a lot about babies. But I'm pretty sure that every one of us know that when babies get hungry, it's time to do something. It's time to feed those babies. Because if you don't, your happiness is going to be pretty much destroyed. They, they will get loud. And if that's not loud enough, they'll get louder. And they will keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. And somebody better put an end to that. And the only way is to feed that baby. So babies are the picture here of of passion, of devotion, of earnestness. The reason you're not feeding me is because I'm not loud enough, so I'm going to get louder. The the reason you're not feeding me is because I'm not aggressive enough, so I'm going to get more aggressive. So like babies long for spiritual milk, like babies long for milk, long for spiritual milk. If you've tasted that the Lord is good. I've often reminded you that the Lord uses these physical analogies all the time in the Scripture. He talks about our eyes and our ears or our heart, our affections, so forth. And here He talks about our taste buds. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. We understand that. We understand that God has created our taste buds for our pleasure, for our enjoyment. And we'd rather have good food, translate that as food that tastes good, uh, than we would have food that's good for us even. Uh, It's all kinds of food that's good for us, but who wants to eat that stuff? I mean, have you actually ever had... I guess I just stop right there. Let me me go further. I'm not a big fan of greens of any kind, okay? You know, my food's supposed to have something yellow, something green, something blue. Isn't that the way it goes? I don't know how that goes. Anyway, I'm really not into that. My idea is if it's starch, let's eat it. The more starches, the better. I got in this shape by being passionate about starches. So I love starches, and I encourage you to love starches. And the fact that you love greens 
you know, that's fine, but don't ask me to eat that stuff. If it comes off the weed eater, I don't eat it. I just don't. And it doesn't matter, you know, why would you put sugar on turnips? I don't know. Some people do that. I just don't do that. I'm not going to do that. So like newborn babies crave milk, long for the pure spiritual milk. We all get that. We all understand that. And we all have taste buds that drive us or motivate us or help us to evaluate things or push us in a certain direction. God has given us these taste buds in order that we might understand passion, that we might understand satisfaction, that we might understand that which tastes good. So he uses that analogy here in verse 3. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, which means you're a Christian, which means that you've been born again, put away malice, put away deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. You are not to be today what you were then. Whatever then, whenever then was, you're not to be that. You're to be something different. And so whenever that was, before you were born again, and whatever characterized your life in the flesh, put it away. And do so like newborn babies crave milk. You and I are to crave the pure spiritual milk that will permit us to grow up. He used a second analogy in verse 4, and that is this issue of stones. A living stone, we are, rejected by men, uh, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And we are built by God into this building or structure or house based on our relationship to Him. So he uses this analogy that's found in Isaiah 28. He quotes it here in verse 6. Stands in Scripture and he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Now in that particular context, if you were to go back to Isaiah, which we're not, but if we were, we'd find that Isaiah is prophesying of a future day. And he's saying there's going to come a day when God is going to send a stone and he's going to take that stone and that he's going to designate that stone as the cornerstone. Now most of us know a little bit about construction to be dangerous, but essentially you don't just start in the middle of the wall, you start in the corner. Start, you don't start in the middle of the building, you start in the corner of the building. And you start there and everything is tied to that. Everything. If that's the, if that's the corner, then the building is going to succeed based on its adjustments to the corner. You start there and everything comes from there. So in this case, he uses Jesus as that analogy in Isaiah 28. And he says, I'm going to send a cornerstone and I'm going to designate him as the cornerstone. And everything's got to be tied to him. But he says in Isaiah 28, but you won't. You'll try to build your life without relationship to the corner. And because of that, your building is going to come down. The structure of your life is faulty. You have no hope of being successful with God. And friends, you want to be successful with God. So he uses the analogy that we are in fact living stones. So we're worked into, as it were, the structure. But we're, we're still alive in our case or in Peter's time frame. He's writing to these folks who are suffering. He says, you're, you're alive as living stones. I think about this often. I'm, uh, 
I'm a big fan of stonework. Susan and I grew up in South Texas and a lot of stonework where we're from, and I enjoy that. I think it's, it's beautiful, first of all. But secondly, I, I respect the craftsmanship. Now, I, I have great respect for all masonry work, but it doesn't appear to be quite as complex if it's just the same size bricks going in the same wall. Easy for me to say as a non-bricklayer, but, but when you take stones that are all different shapes and sizes, and you have to put all that together like a jigsaw puzzle, and somehow you've got to make all that solid, and you've got to make all that so that it can handle uh, water pressure and, and uh, the, the, the elements. You, you go to places around the country today and you see these stone fences or stone walls or stone structures. You can go to Europe and see all these castles and so forth. You know, How's that castle? A thousand years old. Well, the rocks look like they were put there yesterday. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the Western Wall, the so-called Herodian stones there on the Western Wall. More than 2,000 years old, these stones are still sitting on themselves. And you look at that and you say, somebody, somebody is pretty sharp, somebody pretty smart, somebody know how to do that. And you, you have to respect the labor, you have to respect the craftsmanship, you have to respect the designer of all of that. And so he uses that analogy. There's a cornerstone. And there's somebody's building a life, a wall, structure. And to the degree that we are tied to that corner and that we make sense, that we, we're logical for the purposes that we've been placed there, you don't build a wall and then put a rock over here. You don't, you don't lay a, a path and somehow take a random stone and put it over here. What's that stone doing over there? I don't know. Just, you know, he doesn't make any sense. That's not the way people do things. He says, you're, you're tied to the cornerstone. You're born again. So, it stands in Scripture. I'm laying that. That's part of God's design. He intends for you to be a structure that God is building. Then he gives a third illustration, if you will, verse 9. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The King James there has the word peculiar people. I actually like that phrase, peculiar people. Now, that's not a word that we normally use that, uh, that offers a compliment. For instance, I'm sure you didn't greet someone today and say, hey, good morning, you look real peculiar. Pretty sure you didn't greet anybody that way. And I recommend you not, and unless there's context. So what is the context here? The context is that God has called us to be different, chosen, royal, holy. It's the way God works. Think about his relationship to Israel. He, he sets his affection upon Abram. He's in Ur, someplace the Chamber of Commerce would have a hard time with that. Ur. Where are you from? Ur. It's really hard to make that look like the beach. Or the mountains. Ur. See some Ur. He said, leave here. Go to Canaan. Going to build you a great nation. Well, I'm an old man. I don't have any children. How am I going to be a great nation? Well, I'm, I got a plan. I got a plan. You're going to have a miracle child. So at the age of 99, his wife is 90. They have a child, Isaac. Miracle child. You say, well, it seems to me through Scripture there are a bunch of miracle childs. Children. Yes. Isaac is a miracle. Samuel, born to Hannah, she's barren, miracle. Jesus, born to a virgin, the ultimate miracle, real miracle, 
Big miracle. God uses these miracles of children again and again and again to make his point that it's not about flesh and blood. It's about the power of God in the spirit. This is a spiritual house that God is building. And it depends upon spiritual power. What is God doing in your life right now? Well, there are physical things you can point to, and you can say, yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, God's work is spiritual. You can't see his hand. You don't know all of his plans. You don't know all the details of what's going on. You don't know the future. You don't know what God's going to do tomorrow or this afternoon, for crying out loud. And yet God is working in your life, and he's doing that by his spirit. And, and it's not about your strength or your wisdom or your cleverness. It's not, it's not about you. It turns out you're not the answer for you. It turns out you're not the solution for you. It turns out that the Spirit of God, the presence of God, is the answer. We spend all our lives looking for the answer in ourselves. Telling ourselves, you've got to be true to yourself. No, you don't. Because apart from Christ, you're a bunch of this. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Apart from Christ, you're just the flesh. And the flesh and blood cannot achieve the holiness and righteousness of God. The wisdom of man pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. God knows what he's doing. To the degree that we submit to God, that we join ourselves to the cornerstone, that we pursue him earnestly like babies for milk, then we will find power. We will find true life. And the reason is because we're a chosen race, because we are a peculiar people. We are a holy nation. We are the people of God. God has called us to that. And these words all add up to things, don't they? Think about it. We've been changed. We were that, now we're chosen. We were that, now we're royal. We were that, now we're holy. We were that, now we were owned by the king. We're bought with a price. We were that, but we're not that anymore. We've been changed. He also points out that, that we have a noteworthy existence. We have a noteworthy purpose. You may think, and the world will tell you this, that on the one hand, the world will tell you, you know, you're the most important person in the entire universe, which is, of course, ludicrous. You're not. You're just not. Sorry. There are people that have more brains than I do, people have more ability than I do, people have more connections than I do, people have more responsibility than I do. I, I am not and I never will be the most important person in the world. And I just, I need to get over myself. And you do too. And we all just need to go get some ice cream and celebrate the fact that we're regular people. Stop. But we're not eating turnips, we're just eating ice cream. But we are noteworthy, he says. And the reason we're noteworthy is because of our relationship to the one who is exceptional. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are we exceptional? Because we get to be a voice. I was talking to one of my granddaughters this week. And she doesn't like spelling. And I told her, that she needs to work hard at spelling. I tried to give her the old grandfather pep talk. Work hard at spelling. And invariably, this is the reason that we are to learn, okay? This is, so I won't tell you how that went with my granddaughter, but I, 
I, this matters. Why? Because we have the most important news. And if you can't spell, you can't write. And if you can't spell, you can't read. And if you can't read and write, you don't have very many bullets in your gun. You don't have very many skills that God can consecrate to the kingdom. You don't have game. There's an entire world that you're closed to and that's closed to you because you don't learn anything, because you haven't learned anything. So it turns out that learning is important. And it's not important because it's going to make us a million dollars or we're going to be you know, on the face of some great magazine or whatever, or that we're going to be famous, or we're going to be popular, or we're going to be significant in the world's eyes. That is not why we learn. We learn because we are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We got stuff to say. We got a story to tell. And we need to be telling it well. We're not going to be perfect. Just listen to me preach. You'll say, where'd that guy come from? Well, he came from an average school with average people, with average teachers, from an average family, and he ended up being just like them. It's great. Because most of the people in the world are like me. They're average. Some of the people in the world are exceptional. I mean, they're like really, really exceptional. Mentally, academically, intellectually, so forth. Well, some of you can be that so that you have a platform. But when you get to that platform, don't be like them. Apart from darkness, be like Christ. You've been born again. So you're a peculiar people. But we're all a little different in our peculiarities. My peculiarities are different than your peculiarities, which makes for a nice goulash. We actually get along. But the reason is because God has called us to do something that's noteworthy. And even basic skills permit us to be noteworthy in some environs. But some of us are qualified to go beyond basic so that we can be noteworthy in other environments. So that we can tell the good news wherever we go. So whether I'm the first rung of the ladder or the last rung of the ladder socially or intellectually or culturally, I need to be proclaiming this truth. Praise God. So he points out the two areas where this happens. One, in your speech that you may proclaim. And secondly, in your conduct. Verse 11, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So one, in your speech that you speak well. And secondly, that you live well. Now we all know the Bible has much to say about the way we live. And very little to say about, if you will, how to, how to speak well. You know, in words, the Bible is not a manual on how to be a public speaker, how to be a persuasive speaker, uh, how to be an interesting speaker. The Bible is not a manual on any of that. The Bible just simply says that in your speech, make much of Jesus. Talk of Jesus. So it's the content of your speech not necessarily the quality of your speech. But I will go be beyond that and tell you that the, the quality of your speech does matter. If you, if you butcher the king's English, it's just hard in some places. 
So excellence matters. It's not essential in these things, but it matters. But the thing that matters the most is the excellencies of him. It's not that you're the feature, but that he is the feature. The excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's called us to have strong speech. But beyond that, to strong conduct. See, this is how he circles back to the first verse. He says, keep your conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct honorable. So it is your conduct that matters. And if you don't, then it negates your speech. You can talk, 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 talk about how wonderful God is, by how wonderful Christ is, by how wonderful the Holy Spirit is, how wonderful your life in God is. You can talk about that all you want, but if you don't have a life that actually backs that up, then everybody knows you're lying. And they will not honor God. I think about this uh, verse a lot, verse uh, 12. He ends and he says, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a strange phrase for most of us. But that's a, a reference to the return of Christ. Now you may have this uh, attitude that, you know, I've, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried to witness. I've had my speech sharp. I've tried to be careful with my speech and witnessing. And I've tried to live an honorable life. I've tried to, you know, put away deceit and malice and slander and envy. I've tried to do all these things. So I've got honorable speech and I've got honorable deeds and it doesn't appear to change anything. I'm witnessing to a friend. I'm witnessing to a family member. We've been doing this for months, maybe years, maybe decades. And it doesn't appear to change anything. Well, a couple things. Number one, you're not in charge of calendar. Sorry. And secondly, they may never come to believe, but one day they will honor God. Philippians 2 says that when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Peter says it this way, that on the day of visitation, the day of the Lord's visit, the day when the Lord comes, we shall recognize him and we shall give glory to him even for your life. Oh, so you were right. Oh, Christ is worth it. Oh, please let me have a part of that, a piece of that. No. One of the things you note as you read the New Testament, the parables or maybe the teachings of Christ again and again and again deal with this theme that there is a a landowner or a property owner or a business owner has got property or business and he, he goes away on a trip and he leaves people in charge and there's a warning in these parables about these people who are not good managers. They, they, they drink a lot or they, they, they punish the workers and so forth. Or the parable of the ten virgins. You know, there's ten bridesmaids and they, uh, they, they bring oil because they think the, the, bride's, the, the groom is coming at a, at a certain time, but he's delayed and he doesn't get there until late in the evening. And by then, five of them have burned through all the oil in their lamps and the other five have been careful. And the five who are careful uh, get to go into the wedding. And the, the five who burned through the oil, they, they've lost their purpose. They, don't, they, don't, they were there to, to bring the lamps and their lamps are burned out because they're not ready. 
The point, of course, is you don't know when the day of visitation is coming. You don't know when the owner of this vineyard's coming. You don't know when the groom is coming. You don't know where any of these things coming. You're not in charge of calendar. But on the day of visitation, you will bring glory to God because you served Him when nobody could see Him coming. You served Him when it wasn't popular, when it didn't even seem logical, when it didn't seem reasonable. When the world says, hey, eat, drink, and be merry, he's not coming. Or eat, drink, and be merry, you can clean up tomorrow. Eat, drink, and be merry, we got all year, all month, we got, we got forever, don't worry about it. You only got one life to live, seize the moment, brother. The world says this. The warning of scripture is don't do that. Because the day of visitation is coming when you don't know it. If the landowner, if the owner of the house knew at what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have allowed his house to be broken into. But you don't know when the thief is coming. You don't know when the day of visitation is coming. So the warning of Scripture is we are to put these things away and that we are to live our lives as sojourners in this world and to abstain from living as the world lives. Now, what has all this got to do with suffering? Because that's the point of 1 Peter. Well, let me say this and be done. If I were to ask you, just random, would you be willing to give your life to Christ? And let's say for the sake of conversation, you said, sure, I'll give my life to Christ. Wonderful. You're, you're a believer. That's good. There are two primary threats to your staying firm, staying devoted, staying chaste to your covenant. The one is that you have it too good. It's a threat. You begin to take God for granted. This is the warning, by the way, of Deuteronomy 8. If you read Deuteronomy 8, he says, now listen, when you go over in the promised land, and you drink from wells you didn't dig, and you move into houses you didn't build, and you till and uh, receive the harvest from, from crops you didn't plant, don't forget the one who gave all that to you. When you prosper, you have a tendency to forget God. So the big threat in your life, number one, is that you would become prosperous and you forget the one who actually made your life what it is, given you life. The second threat is the reverse. That your life is so hard, so difficult, so painful, so much a struggle, you have to suffer so much that you decide it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I can't keep going. I won't keep going. I'm going to jettison all this stuff that doesn't make me feel significant or important or the reason for all of this. The reason for my life is me and all this suffering is a real problem. <coughs> well, God deals with that as well in Scripture. He's aware of these threats. <laughs> well, that's what he's doing in Peter. He's not dealing about the prosperity challenge to your life here. He's dealing with the suffering challenge of your life. And it goes something like this. When it gets hard, and it will, 
And it has. And it does. When it gets hard. And you don't keep in mind that you've been born again. Not of the will of the flesh. But of the will of God. By the spirit of God. That you've been born of an incorruptible seed. And that God has chosen you. To make you a holy nation. A peculiar people. For himself. So that you might proclaim the excellence of him. Who called you out of darkness into light. You're going to forget that. When it gets hard. Unless you don't. So he tells you here in chapter 2. Don't. Don't forget that. Put away the malice and the envy and the deceit. And the other things that are warring against your confidence. Your grip as it were on God. And he says don't do that. Instead. Continue to push forward. Keep your conduct honorable. Because one day Jesus is coming back. And all the sorrow and suffering and pain and difficulty you've experienced in this life. That others will tell you it's not worth it. You can say yes it was. And your faithfulness will, if you will, bring renown to God in the coming of Christ. Your faithfulness. Jesus asked rhetorically, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Hmm. It's a good question. Is it possible that the entire church, not just this church, but every church, is blown up and eradicated from the planet? No, not possible. I always think of Elijah. I close here. Elijah's on Mount Carmel. He's doing business with the prophets of Baal. Big battle. 400 or so of them. Only one of him. Great battle. He wins. Of course, they all die. The prophets are all killed. And, of course, Jezebel is the queen. Jezebel says, before the sun goes down, bucko, you're going to die. Elijah hightails it. He's on Mount Carmel, which is in northwest Israel. And he goes all the way to the Negev, which is in southeast Israel, beyond Israel, into the desert of Arabia. And he's in a cave, and God appears to him. He says, uh, Elijah, what you doing down here? He said, well, she's out to get me. I'm paraphrasing, of course. She's out to get me. Woe is me. There's no one left but me. And God says, you failed math, didn't you? Turns out I got 5,000 who've never bowed the knee to Baal. Because God's not going to lose. Let's make sure that we don't either. It's time to put some stuff away and to keep our conduct honorable. Because the day of visitation is coming. And on that day, we want to be on the winning side. Because we're born again. Let's act like it. Pray with me. Father, whether there are dozens or thousands or millions, tens of millions, and surely there are, I pray that we might be faithful to you. That you'd help us in our weakness. Help us in our fleshliness. 
Help us to fight the flesh and to trust you as you work in our lives to shape us, to conform us to the image of Christ. We glory in you. We pray your mercies upon us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hey, before you go, let me make a couple of quick announcements. If you're here today, you'd like to talk to someone about what it means to be a 